I want to begin the message by asking you a question that uh, you may not say the answer out loud, but you, you, you probably certainly think about it. Um, ever seen someone do something and you kind of leaves your head scratching and you go, how can that person do that? I thought I knew him so well. Maybe you say that same thing about yourself. Maybe it's a close friend um, that lied about you and you were just with them. Maybe it's a family member that's uh, cut you off when you were so close. Same person, but they acted in a completely opposite way in which you thought at the core they were, they were different than that. It happened to me this week. I'll tell you about it. There's a classic piece of literature uh, called Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's the story of a respectable doctor in London who was admired as a pillar of society. Yet when Dr. Jekyll drank a vial of potion, poison, he transformed himself into a wretched other man who gives in to passions and violence. This went on for quite a while. Same person, different person. Until Dr. Jekyll couldn't control the switch back and forth, and evil took over. His public persona was merely a cover for his hideness that lurks. The author of that classic, Robert Louis Stevenson, was fascinated by examples of people who lived double lives and to some extent, we all do. The German church reformer, Martin Luther, called this reality, this two different natures. He used a Latin phrase that was called simul udus es peccator. Let me say that again. I think I got it right. Simul udus es peccator. Simultaneously, saint and sinner. Luther goes on to say, thus a Christian person is righteous and a sinner at the same time holy and profane. And this morning, we look at a person and we see ourselves and say, how do I do that? So if you are a follower of Christ, this morning you will see faith. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, you will see who faith holds to and whom one can turn to in the very darkest of moments. If you're a follower of Christ, you will see the folly in a man by the name of Hezekiah. And you will see his, your own Hydeness, Mr. Hydeness, in his life. If you are not yet a follower of Christ, but curious, you will see the messiness of a follower of Jesus and the need for only holy, solely work of Christ in his life. So today, we look at Hezekiah. Same person as we looked at last week, and it's, it's part two. And so uh, there's no surprise here. The same sermon title is used uh, this Sunday as last Sunday. It wasn't that I was lazy. It was just because I wanted to prove a point. Who do you now trust? Last week, we looked at chapters 36 and 37 of Isaiah, and there were two key words that we saw played, trust and deliver. When the Assyrians threatened Hezekiah, he stood up to their bullying by God's grace. We see that in chapter 36 and 37. And we learned last week that every, oh, excuse me, always there will be a mocking voice in every generation. Always there will be. 
We see that in verse 30, chapter 36. In chapter 37, we, we understood this, that God will always hear a humble cry. How he will answer is up to him. So this morning we come to part two. Part two of who do you now trust? And we won't see the words, we will see the actions of both faith and folly. Same person, different endings. Grace is God's, always, always, is always God's answer. Pastor Ray Ortland is the one who said when the Assyrians threatened Hezekiah in 36 and 37, he stood up to their bullying by God's grace. But when you get to 38 and 39, when Babylonians flatter Hezekiah, he falls to their tricks due to his pride. So as printed in your worship bulletin, some things might be helpful to you after this sermon if you want to dig in, and I'd encourage you to dig in more. I listed there the background information of 2 Kings 20 and 2 Chronicles 32, 24 through 30. It'll give you some more background information. And there may be things that the Holy Spirit shows you as you read that and go, wow, I didn't know that. So let me, set, let me just set the context. From last week, we looked at a national crisis. Today, we're going to look at a personal crisis. We're going to see God's faithfulness, and we're going to see his unfaithfulness. Now, there's a historical hinge that I want to show you. On the back side of your bulletin, there's an Isaiah overview, and I'd encourage you to take a look at that. I don't study it the whole time. I'd like you to listen to the sermon a little bit. Um, but it'll give you an overview of where we've been. And you will see in the middle there, you will see in the middle there that we come to a historical hinge we mentioned it last week, that historical hinge is 36 through 39. And as you dig in and read of Isaiah's or Hezekiah's sickness and healing in 38 and 39, it actually happens before 36 and 37. This is pretty important. It's not a detail, but it's pretty important. The events of 38 and 39 happened before the events of 36 and 37. How do you know that? We read in Isaiah 38, 36, a promise, a promise that God will deliver Hezekiah and the city from Assyria. So the natural question is, is okay, if you're saying that 38 and 39 should happen before 36 and 37, why? What, what's, what's the point? The point is this. We are to get and not forget that what we're going to read has consequences for what will come in the, past, in the future. 38 and 39 are not in chronological order, but they point to the consequences of what will happen in 40 through 30, 40, chapters 40 through 66. Now, we see this in other places of Scripture. We see in the Gospels, in the book of Mark, the book of Mark is not written chronologically. It is written with this theme. Mark chapter 1, it is this, so that you will know the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 1, 1. Mark 1, 2 is this, and it goes right into the gospel of Isaiah. And in the gospel of Isaiah, it says this in Mark chapter 1, verse 2. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That's the whole point of Mark, so that you know the good news. We see the example in chapter, in chapter 1 of Luke. Luke writes, 
I'm writing an orderly account that you might know the true things that happened to Jesus Christ. There's a purpose there. A purpose there. So why is this important? For this reason. Hezekiah will first be healed when God meets him in a personal crisis. You're going to see it. He will heal him not because of his trust, but because of undeserved grace and favor. He did a personal work in his life. Christianity is unique in first you receive and you are adopted and you are called beloved. And it always leads to change. Undeservedly, this gift is given to you. In Christianity, we are first accepted. We first are, are being called chosen, dearly loved, adopted, beloved. And from that declaration, then we are transformed. Then we respond. Pastor Timothy Keller from New York put it this way. Listen, this is so good. Traditional religion says, I give God a good moral record, so he has to bless me. The gospel says, God gives me a good moral record through Christ, so I want to bless him. Do you see the difference? Religion says, if you obey, then God will love and accept you. The gospel says, God loves and accepts me, therefore I want to obey. Wow. So here's where we're going, friends, this morning. We're going to take a look at the problem of sin, which is in, a, in chapter 38, which comes before 36 and 37. Hezekiah prays, and he is healed miraculously with a sign. And in our pain, it allows an opportunity to draw closer to the Father. Chapter 39, where we're going, chapter 39, which really historically is before 36 and 37, Hezekiah's true colors are shown. He caves. He's flattered. He's selfish. He's prideful. He cheats on his kids' future. He is in it for himself. And he acts in a way that you go, you got to be kidding me. So I'd invite you to find a copy of the scriptures. Isaiah chapter 38 and 39. It's on the Pew Bible there give you a second to find it. It's on page 618. And we ask this question, who do you now trust? We ask this question, who do you now trust? In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amaz, went to him and said, this is what the Lord says, put your house in order because you're going to die. You will not recover. Can you see the doctor's office there? Hezekiah's prayer journal. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah and said, Go and tell Hezekiah, This is what the Lord, the God of your father, says, I've heard your prayers and seen your tears. And I will add 15 years to your life. Now deliver you and the city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. That's the key verse that we know that 
This happened, 38 happened before 36 and 37. This is the Lord's sign that the Lord will do what he has promised. Another miracle. I will make the shadow cast by the sun go back the 10 steps it has gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. So the sunlight went back the 10 steps it had gone down. Skipping to 39. At that time, Meriduk Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gifts because he had heard of his illness and recovery. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly. Another translation says rejoiced. We'll unpack that. And showed them what was in his storehouse, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine olives, olive oil, his entire armory and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said, what did those men say and where did they come from? Oh, from a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away. And they'll become eunuchs in the palace and the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah said. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. This is God's word. It's true. It's always true. The first thing that we're going to take a look at, ponder a little bit, as we ask, who do you now trust? From chapter 38 is this, personal pain can bring us closer to our gracious Heavenly Father. Hear that? Personal pain can bring us closer to our gracious Heavenly Father. Let me explain it by this way. You'll notice that he was terminally ill. Get your house in order. He had a personal crisis, and we read, you read, you heard me read his personal prayer journal. I've walked up and down with you, and he weeps. He weeps. And then Isaiah fulfills his role as a prophet. Two primary things for a prophet. He speaks for God. He looks at the present with future implications. He speaks for God, and the present has future implications. And that's what he does. He speaks for God, you're gonna be healed. Not only that, not only are you gonna be healed, but I'm gonna save this city. That was a future event. We read about Hezekiah more of in his prayer journal after his rescue, and you hear just the depths of his ache and despair. And I, I didn't read those, but I want to just highlight a few things. You'll see in verse 10 and 11, he is in the land of the living, 
And he imagines for just a bit what it would be like not to see Yahweh, my heavenly father. What would that be like? Never to see him ever again. Hell. His heart is broken. There is this hostility that happens, this word picture, like tent poles that are pulled up. Images of tents <clears throat> make social media, make television. We see the tents in Maui after that devastation. And even though they have protection at night, morning still comes. We still have to deal with the reality. But there's a, a, there's a play on words in the Gospel of Isaiah. And it's the play on words about sign. The sign of him being healed is that the sun will go back. A miracle will take place. A sign will come. But you'll notice that what Isaiah writes in his, in his prayer journal, he adds something. It's not just him being healed. He also mentions that his sins will be forgiven. Do you see it? Where do you find that? I find it in verse 17. You've put all my sins behind your back. In your love, you kept me from the pit of destruction, and you put all my sins behind your back. And it would be perfectly appropriate to say, wait a second. I thought he was praying about his physical health. What's this about sins? Why is that important? Isaiah would have a sign. His sign would be the supernatural sun that would move back, or the sun supernaturally would move back. Excuse me. His father also would get a sign. 34 years later, earlier, previously, his, his father, Ahaz, wicked man, same place that he was at, the upper pool in Launder's field that's recorded in Isaiah 36, his father got a sign too. And his sign was this. You hear it at Christmas time. And unto you, unto you a child will be born. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and that son will be called Emmanuel. That was his sign. His sign would be Emmanuel. Isaiah's, uh, Hezekiah's sign would be the son that would move back, and there would be another sign that would come. Yes? 700 years later, the angels tell us in Luke chapter 122, and this will be the sign. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Another sign. That the light of the world would come and die for us. That the light of the world who took on flesh would take our sins upon his back and be whipped. And the light of the world would experience the reality that Mark 15, 30, 33 says and that we hear all the time at communion, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He went to the pit for us. He went to the pit of destruction for us. He would take the sins of me and of you upon his back, and he would carry them. And the cross... The cross is the sign that says, come to me. Give me your sins. Give me your heartache. Give me your brokenness. Come to me.
come to me. Let me state it again, personal, who can you now trust? Personal pain can draw us closer to our gracious heavenly Father. And his arms are open wide, child of God. There's another chapter, and there's a key phrase, a key phrase that was made famous by Prime Minister of Britain. Neville Chamberlain was the Prime Minister of Britain before Winston Churchill. He served from 1937 to 1940, and on September 30th, 1938, and Chamberlain spoke to a crowd, and he used a phrase called, peace in our time. This is what he said on the morning. He said, this morning, I had another talk with German Chancellor Herr Hitler. I wonder where this is going to go. And here is the paper which bears his name on it, as well as mine. Some of you perhaps have heard what it contains, but I'd like to read it to you, and so he read it to him. We regard the agreement that we both signed, Chamberlain and Hitler, and the, as a symbolical sign of a desire of two people who will never go to war with one another, ever again. Later that day, he addressed the crowds and he used this phrase. Listen, my good friends, for the second time in our history, a British prime minister, he's talking about himself, has returned from Germany bringing peace with honor. I believe it is peace for our time. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Now go home and get a nice, quiet sleep. September 30th, 1938. September 3rd, 1939. Not even a year later. Britain went to war with Germany. This phrase, peace in our times, Peace in my time is what Hezekiah said. He got a judgment from God Almighty. And he said, well, it's not going to affect me. And so here's the second thing that we can learn from this. And the mirror of God's word shows this to us. Personal piety can conceal a divided heart. Personal piety can seal a divided heart. Now who will he trust? The promise had been made in Isaiah 38, 36, that God would rescue, God would heal Hezekiah, and he would deliver the city. God had already promised that. And now Hezekiah goes back in chapter 39, and he trusts Babylon to take care of his Assyria issues. So here's, what, here's what's taking place. Assyria... The super country, the Nazis, had surrounded little Judah on the north, along the Mediterranean, and then on the south at Lachish. Now the Babylonians come. Now the Babylonians come, and they flatter. They flatter Hezekiah. They flatter him. In fact, the word in verse 2, the word rejoiced, means that he was overwhelmed. He tried to impress them. He showed them everything. And most likely, the only thing that was left of the country was the city of Jerusalem 
and all the wealth in the temple. Maybe he went home, showed his wife the letters, and he said, you're never going to believe. They want us to join their rebellion against Assyria. Wow. So Isaiah does what prophets do. What do prophets do? They, they speak the word of the Lord, and then they take the present events and cast them out into the future. Isaiah has been doing this, right, as the messenger of God. He's been saying, you're a holy people. You're a covenant people. You belong to me. He, he says a strong word of judgment. You're going, you want to go with Babylon? You want to help them? You're going to have all of Babylon. And all of Babylon is going to happen to my people. It will happen 100 years later. But it will happen. And Hezekiah says something in his heart. And you'll notice again what the big deal is. Look at verse 8. Let's repeat it again. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. And then he thought, there will be peace and security in my time. He thinks only of himself. It's a disappointment as a child of God. As a father, his sons will become eunuchs. And also to his monarchy, his dynasty. The Babylonians were taking notes. They would later come and plunder and devastate the temple. Instead of seeking and fasting God before the Lord, he did with, like he did with Assyria, he pridefully showed off his wealth. What a stab in the back. Trusting in God, who always remains faithful, was an option. I, I mentioned before that in your worship bulletins you have Second Kings and Second Chronicles to give you a little background information. And the reason why that's important is because of this. Second Chronicles gives us just a little bit of insight into what was happening, what was playing out. Second Chronicles 32, 31 says this. Write this verse down and go study this, if you will. So in a matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself. God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. Pastor, what does that mean? These thoughts from a British minister and author in the 1600, Matthew Henry writes this, God left Hezekiah to himself that by this trial and his weakness in it was, in, that, was that his heart might be known, that he was not so perfect in grace as he thought he was. It's good for us to know ourselves and our own weakness and sinfulness that we may not be conceited or self-confidence, but that we always live in dependence on the divine grace of God. We know not the corruption of our own heart, nor what we shall do if God leaves us to himself. His sin was, and so his heart was lifted up. You know what? When I read that passage of scripture, I thought to myself this week, I said, you promised. You promised that you will never leave us or forsake us. 
the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 17 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Verse 10, Jeremiah 17, 10 says this, I, the Lord, search the heart and I examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. He has promised never to leave us. So this week, I called a trusted friend. I said, I need to visit with you. I, I need some counsel. And in our conversation, as we talked back and forth, it just naturally came out. It just naturally came out. I gossiped about another leader. And as we talked, it wasn't real long. It, after our phone call, I hung up, and I went to bed that night, and I had this gut soul ache like I had eaten a ton of junk food and just grieved my spirit. It just grieved my spirit. I asked God for forgiveness. I asked questions like, why did I do that? Why did I do that? I texted my trusted friend first thing in the morning and I said, please forgive me. What I said was out of bounds. I should not have said that. He needs our prayers and our intervention. And I asked for forgiveness and he texted me back and he said, Kirk, I forgive you. I extend grace to you. I thought, what? Why did I do that? Why did I do that? And I was reminded, I was reminded again that the gospel isn't A, B, C's. Like it's so simple, let's get past the gospel. No, the gospel is not ABCs, but it is A to Z. It is everything, every day, all the time, in every situation. Don't we sing? Lord, I need thee. Oh, I need thee every... What's the next line? Hour. Every hour, I need thee. Every day. How do we handle this double-mindedness? James chapter 1, verse 8 says, how do I handle this other-mindedness? The book of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says this, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you received. Be completely humble. I need you. I need you. I need you today. What is the ABCs, A to Z, like what is that? I was reminded of two things this summer in our time away that we had. I was reminded just a simple discipline to pray the Lord's Prayer every day. That seems so basic. I mean, it seems so basic, doesn't it? And then the writer said, just pause. And as you pray that, Allow the Holy Spirit let just to focus in on one phrase. And this week for me, it's been Father. It's been hallowed be thy name. This morning it was thy kingdom come. What would the kingdom come look like? Alec Moitier, a, a scholar in Isaiah says this, we can never tell in advance when the point of no return will be reached. It's a secret locked in the absolute justice of the divine love. We just know that we must flee every temptation and clutch, believing in patiently, resolutely, unto the promises 
of God. German reformer Martin Luther said that this chapter is directed against the horrible beast called presumption. Presumption. Wow. So in conclusion, what do you do with a complex person like Hezekiah? What do you do with the stuff in your life? The back and forth. The natural tendency is just to cut someone off, right? Cut someone off. But in my devotions this week, I thought, you want to cut off Hezekiah? One of my favorite books is the book of Proverbs. I've been reading it almost every day since I've been a senior in high school, like last year. <laughs> You're listening. And I came across my devotions this week, Proverbs chapter 25, 26, 27, 28, and 29, a sixth of the book of Proverbs was overseen by Hezekiah. I couldn't believe it. I'm just doing my normal devotions, nothing fancy. And I read... These Proverbs of Solomon were compiled by Hezekiah and his guys. I thought, I can't, I can't cut him out. I can't cut him out. Second Chronicles 32 verse 26 says this. I don't know the timing of it, but he said he humbled himself. Years ago, my mom, who's in heaven now, said this to me as a young pastor. She said, glance at others, gaze at Jesus. Glance at others, gaze at Jesus. You meant, oh, that is so cute. And I thought, wait a sec, mom's on to something. Hebrews chapter 12, one and two says, therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, surrounded, including Hezekiah, including his life, the good, the bad, the doc, Dr. Jekyll part, the Mr. Hyde part, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author of A to Z and the perfecter of our faith. Be encouraged, friends. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious Lord, how you treated your servant so graciously. And we are the same way. Have mercy upon us. Pour out your grace upon us. Thank you for sending your son to go to the pit of hell and having all the darkness upon him. Thank you for that message again and again and again. We need to hear that. Oh, friend in Christ, I invite you now, if you have not in this worship hour, to confess your sins, to admit what your gracious Father knows already, that you've violated sins of omission and commission. Confess that to him now. It is with humble joy that I remind you of this verse. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because of Christ, how God sees Jesus, he sees you now, holy and pure. What a great God we serve. Let's stand and sing. We've got one more verse.